We interrupt this program to bring you the utility players classified results. Arsenal 1, West Ham United 0. Heart of Midlothian 0, St Mirren 1. Tennessee Titans 24, Kansas City Chiefs 35. Edinburgh Rugby 14, Cardiff Blues 6. Brisbane Broncos 0, Sydney Roosters 59. Red Bull Leipzig 1, Paderborn 1. Werner Brennan 0, Wolfsburg 1. Tommy Fleetwood 8 over, missed cut. Adelaide Crows 71, Sydney Swans 74. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Hi Rory, how are you doing? Are you ready for our first ever podcast? I'm raring to go, I'm absolutely raring to go. I know, just probably a little bit of housekeeping um, uh, before we go any further. At the top of the show there, you'll have heard our introduction and, and will have heard the Utility Players Classified Results just a bit of a background on what that's about. I think me and Rory over the years have uh, grown a fondness to a lot of different sports and, and on the back of that have uh, created some some teams and some followings in different sports. So we thought it would be uh, a great way for, for the listeners to get to know a little bit about ourselves and, and follow some of the teams we support in, across the different sports. So yeah, at the top of the programme, every single week we will update you with how our teams have got on over the past seven days in between recordings. I think with the case of us, you usually find they've got them pretty terribly because we don't always have the best luck with our sports teams. Um, but it'll allow you to follow our pain and misery and occasional joy throughout our following of the world of sports. I, I, I have actually been thinking since we first sort of discussed this idea, uh, how long it will be until we get a full house um, or, or, if, <laughs> or if indeed we'll ever get a full house of results. Um, some of the some of the results you heard there are obviously um, a little bit dated. Uh, it was just to give you a bit of a flavour of the different teams that we follow and individuals that we follow. Obviously, in the, the backdrop of the, the global pandemic uh, that coronavirus has brought the last couple of months, we've seen sports around the world shut down and obviously some sports are out of season. So, so uh, those updates will will uh, depend on obviously what season's going on and, and what teams are playing at any given week. Uh, so it'll give you a bit of variety from, from week to week. Yeah, I think in terms of getting the full house, Hearts getting relegated or potentially getting relegated will certainly help our, well, you'd hope would help us towards getting the full house as they might get a few more wins next year than they've done this year. Well, it was it was like the last time they, they were down there. I think I think Labrooks uh, and Paddy Power, uh, all all, uh, all bookmakers are available, obviously, were making a loss almost every weekend because I think you had Rangers and you had Hibs and you had Hearts. So you had all down in the Championship or League One. So I think your, uh, your accumulators were a little bit easier that season than others. Well, I think that was the ultimate season of Scottish football in terms of competitiveness because having Hearts, Rangers and Hibs all in the championship with a viable option to win the league something that's 
Scottish footballers missing more than two teams having a viable option to win the league. So, so are you suggesting that that we should just relegate the old firm and 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 the Edinburgh based teams just just to the Championship, or, or maybe just leave maybe put Celtic in in League Two or something to just give it so, <laughs> so so that we can make all the leagues uh, all these excitable. In fact, no, not so because Edinburgh City would then struggle. So I think we should get rid of Celtic and then we don't have to worry about it. I mean, I don't think I would complain about that. Sorry to all the Celtic fans that are listening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we sort of continue, uh, obviously this this podcast is something that me and me and Roy have discussed for a while and and been waiting for the opportunity to do. Obviously, right now in the world, there's a lot of ongoing issues, both uh, in the world of sport and on a higher level. Um, throughout the course of these podcasts, we, we're obviously going to be discussing what's happening in the world of sport, but we do that with, with the knowledge that uh, there is a lot of other more, more important things going on. Obviously, we do not want to, you know, demean any of the uh, any of the important issues going on, not only within the pandemic and, and what that is causing globally, but right now what we're seeing across the United States and the world with the Black Lives Matter movement. We we here are just going to talk about what is happening in the world of sports, and and anything we discuss, you know, is with the knowledge that it doesn't necessarily. Uh, add up to, to the issues that are going on around the world. So if uh, we're through the course of this podcast, we can provide you with uh, some uh, light-hearted or light-heated uh, entertainment and and give you 40 minutes away from what's going along in your lives and around the world, then then we're very happy to do so. So we would be remiss not to mention that uh, we are aware of what's going on in the world and uh, and we hope everyone stays safe out there. Yeah, absolutely. I said it's been a difficult time for all and we've all learned a lot and we've all certainly gone through hardship and had to question ourselves at times and also change how we interact with people. But in doing that, it's very important that we have opportunities to enjoy entertainment, enjoy the fun things and enjoy sport because that's why so many people engage with sport to escape from the trials and tribulations of daily life. So this episode is just going to involve us obviously introducing ourselves uh, it would just be hearing me and Roy discussing a number of issues that are going on around the world of sports as more programs uh, come to air we are going to have a guest each week to discuss any and every element of sport uh, from the playing side of it to the hopefully the coaching and managing side of it uh, from physiotherapists strength and conditioning coaches referees umpires media to really give uh, our thoughts and our insights into sport as a whole uh, as we say there's a lot more to sport than what you see on the pitch and we hopefully be able to interact and have some really good in-depth conversations with the world of sport as a whole yeah i think that's a really important point certainly one thing i found fascinating about sport is the kind of whole process that surrounds it obviously a lot of what you see in sport is the individual or the group of players that you see out on the pitch and you kind of can forget actually the massive teams that are involved in getting those individual players to that process so if throughout this the course of this podcast we can as well as celebrate and highlight individual players we can also celebrate and highlight individual staff members and individual representatives from the club that have made that club or made sporting careers from themselves away from the playing fields absolutely and, and obviously the the other side of that is is the broadcasting side uh, and, and what you see either on your television screens or ultimately what you also see li- at live events uh, you know there's a lot of people and a lot of individuals to go into to make sport enjoyable for everyone so hopefully over the course of the, the shows we can bring you uh, you know a bit of fun a bit of laughter get to know some of these individuals on a more personal level but also delve into different elements of sport that you don't necessarily come to mind when you first think about it okay so obviously as as i've alluded to we've, we've decided to start this podcast as we are 
what hopefully looks like coming out the back of a pandemic. You know, obviously different parts around the world are, are doing this in different timelines. Uh, and that is, can obviously be seen with returning dates for different sports. And and with uh, this week, it seems to be a bit of a, a, bit of a shift uh, in what we're seeing in the world of sport. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of people will have had their light relief over the past few weeks with the Bundesliga returning, as well as snooker fans and horse racing fans getting their first taste of sporting action in the UK. You'll have even noticed uh, the classified results at the top of the programme. We have picked our Bundesliga teams, so we've been following that much more avidly than we have done previously. I'm unfortunately a Werner Brennan fan, so it's not been too pretty viewing so far. But I've quite enjoyed the Bundesliga so far. Uh, so, so have I. It's it's not a league that I've ever really watched with any sort of close uh, close connection to or, or an eye on it. You know, you watch from afar with with over the years, people like Dortmund and uh, pushing pushing um, pushing Bayern Munich, who obviously have dominated for a while. But I found it really intriguing, actually, having got into this year. What what's come out of it is throughout the course of the season for once it looked like there was a bit of a close race you know with RB Leipzig whatever you think about Red Bull's intervention in the world of sports uh, <laughs> uh, and and the, and the potential pyramid scheme they're trying to run uh, but I think it's been really interesting that, to sort of follow back on the course of the year that although it looks like Bayern Munich are now running away with it uh, there, it seems to have been a bit of a three horse race for them for the most part yeah of course and obviously Borussia Mönchengladbach like to think they're in with that race as well so maybe it's something that shows that the German league is becoming slowly more competitive again, which obviously would help European football more greatly. Um, and also potentially could be a model of how Scottish football could go, given how we started this programme. <laughs> well, I, I, and, that, and that's the thing, you know, we, we, competitive sport is what it's all about. And I think, you know, uh, I think it's safe to say, unless you are uh, a Celtic fan, you know, the, the Scottish league has, from my perspective, Roy, got a little bit dull. Yeah, Agreed. And obviously, maybe Rangers had themselves to blame for managing their financials in a way that wasn't desirable and therefore caused them to fall back and kind of lose a lot of the competitive edge. I guess a lot of the Scottish football, the enjoyment comes from kind of, I think you get a lot of passion and a lot of kind of almost banter from the fans from the fact that they passionately support this league that is inevitably less exciting than some of the leagues that surround it. That's a fair point. As the world of sport gets more and more monopolised and money you know, becomes a bigger and bigger influence, you wonder how far Scottish football is going to get left behind. Well, it was 1998, the last time the national team um, made it to a, to a global event in France 98. And you wonder, as, as all these other leagues are, are popping up, uh, but more importantly, as the big sort of four in in the Premier League, the Bundesliga, Serie A and La Liga, as they continue to eat the market into the television, what effect that's going to have to Scottish football? I I remember growing up when you looked at the likes of, you know, you hate to talk about Celtic and Rangers, being competitive in European competitions uh, and producing uh, teams that that, that could go toe-to-toe week in, week out. And and I just feel that with it being such a a one-horse race now in Celtic, for the most part of the last decade, just taking any players of note and then not really playing them is, is killing football in Scotland. Well, I think the money aspect is such a fantastic point. I think the thing that really highlighted it to me was that when Virgil van Dijk was sold to Liverpool, Celtic got 10% of that off the back of the agreement they made with Southampton. So it took £7.5 million, And I believe it was reported that was more money than any other Scottish side would make in a whole year. 
they got from that one transfer. And that just shows, one, the lack of money in Scottish football. I think we were looking up Hearts' highest ever signing, and it's 900k. No, it was John Robertson, uh, 1.2 million, which having sold, they sold him, sold him to Newcastle the year before, then bought him back at about a £5 profit. <laughs> and that and just shows, in the world where money is dominating football, how can Scottish teams be competitive if outside of the Scottish system? if this is the sort of money they have compared to the big four leagues that you just mentioned. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know the solution. Uh, it, it just seem, it just seems a bit redundant to me that, that if we're going to have a league uh, where we talk about, you know, the passion, you know, and, and pe- people say football's a tribal sport, and I have a lot of issues with, with that because I think a lot of people in football hide behind that um, when we talk about potential changes that are successful in other sports, uh, you know, and the resistance that, that some... Uh, some football fans and pundits have to it because they say it's a travel sport. But I think you can see that in Scottish football and it's the only way it's kind of managed to stay afloat because, uh, you know, you, you go to, you know, you go to Falkirk, you go to East Stirling, you go to Dunfermline or as far up as Ross County, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, filling the stands, but the, the passion that you find from your local supporters is, is outstanding. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's kind of what I was alluding to. It's, that kind of tribal element and that kind of fan base that is driving Scottish football and keeping it popular within Scotland, at least, is the fact that fans genuinely know they're not supporting the most glamorous or the most fabulous or the most talented football team. Okay, Celtic fans and potentially Rangers fans might believe they are, but outside that, I think most fans know that they're not, but it's the kind of loyalty that also drives the lower leagues in the English football system and it's certainly driving the Scotland system that kind of loyalty and passion behind your local community and your local side that is I guess the one thing that's keeping Scottish football afloat I've just come up with a money-making scheme for us go on is finding a way to translate loyalty and fans into actual producing of of pounds well wasn't didn't going back to the Bundesliga wasn't this a, didn't Union Berlin fans donate thousands of thousands of pounds when their club was in trouble. Is this a story that I saw recently or have I just totally well, made that up? No, well, I don't know if it was them. I'll probably have to do a little bit of research this, but it might not have been that, but over the weekend I was watching German football and I, I heard a story that was being said that it might have been Berlin, as you talk about, actually the, the fans built their stadium. Yes, I think this was it. That yes. it was actually through their their fans who had the the skills the the labor skills to to actually build the stadium themselves um and you know we sort of talk about you know passionate support and what it means to the community and how communities gather around sports teams i mean nothing nothing sort of emulates that more than the fact that you've got your 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 fans coming and actually using taking their time to put you know which could be put to other uses to build a stadium yeah for sure and i guess we saw that We've seen that a bit with clubs going into financial trouble and the fans starting up crowdfunding sources to help the clubs out, but we've never seen so much passion within a football team that they actually build their own stadium. So I'm going to double-check that. I believe it was Union Berlin, but fair play to them if it was. Yeah, and I think uh, while you looked that up, I think we've obviously touched on there, you know, a lot of talk about Scottish football, which... Unfortunately, but looks of it isn't going to be one of the sports that isn't coming back to finish their seasons this year. Um, have they jumped the gun, do you reckon? I'm thinking this, certainly. Because you see 
leagues across Europe now starting and even the lower professional leagues within the English system starting, which potentially in terms of financial power and in terms of resources, maybe not equal to Scottish football, but certainly more on a similar level, also finding ways to restart. And it feels like it was potentially slightly premature from the Scottish League to call it when they did. And I know that for the fans and for the Hearts fans out there, there might be a lot of annoyance that they're not getting that chance to stay up and avoid relegation. Well, I mean... I think if we, we go back to our classified results, uh, you know, they, they I think they Hearts Hearts Midlothian nil St Mirren one was was one of them, and and when that game does it look different? I think if if you look back to that period, I think if you go, if they had shut down the league a week before uh, they did, I think there had been about a four point swing, and and Hearts were actually sitting second bottom rather than bottom, so they survived. So it just shows that. The the difference a seven day period can make is it can have such implications and ramifications. Yes, exactly, um, and it just kind of shows. Look, I'm not. I don't want to make it sound like we are having a go at anyone within the SFA or any of the clubs because of the decision they made. It's obviously an extremely hard decision, and there's so many factors that get taken into account. And potentially, if we were sat on the boardrooms and in the meeting rooms with all the information in front of us, we would have made the same decisions. You don't know because you're not there, but it does seem particularly unfair, not unfair, I don't know if that's the right word, but harsh to punish teams and relegate sides when not every single match has been played and they haven't had every single opportunity to win points in the same way that it potentially unfair to give teams the title when they haven't had every opportunity to win points. For example, we're going to talk a lot about Liverpool and we talk about the Premier League restarting and people's kind of adamancy that they shouldn't win the title until they've earned it. And you can't, although it, like Liverpool are going to win the title, there's no two doubts about that. You can understand why people think, well, until they've actually won it, you can't give them to it, or at least you have to put the dreaded asterisks next to it until they've actually 100% done it outright. Absolutely. And and as you mentioned there, we're, the Premier League is is still a, you know, I think we're about eight days away now, so we're still a week away to the Premier League starting. But for other sports, um, we're, we're finding it's much closer in terms of they'll be starting within this week. Uh, as mentioned, the Bundesliga started a couple of weeks ago. The NRL, uh, the Rugby League over in Australia, has been going for a couple of weeks. Uh, and this week, we've got we've got five more sports joining them. The PGA Tour uh, gets underway over in uh, Colonial this week. Uh, you also got the AFL starting up. Richmond are taking on Collingwood. Richmond, who who, who won the won the AFL last year, um, are looking to to get uh, some momentum going at what will be an empty MCG, uh, which I can imagine is probably going to be that. If you think about sort of stadiums around the world where people are going to be playing in, and, and the fact that for most sports, uh, not all sports, as we'll discuss later, but most sports are playing not in front of a crowd. The MCG has to be up there. It's probably the most eerious. Oh, for sure. Um, before we go into that, just to pick up on the point from earlier, it was Union Berlin. Their fans helped refurbish their stadium. So they didn't build it from scratch, but refurbished their stadium in 2009. So fair play to them. But yeah, in terms of the AG- MCG, just with its size... You'd have thought that must be really eerie. But then you said you visited the MGD for the Boxing Day test and there was 80,000 fans in there and it still felt empty. So maybe actually people were used to it in the MCG because it's so hard to fill in the first place. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say I, I was a Boxing Day test a number of years ago and it's a 100,000 seater stadium and it had 70 odd thousand. And I, I was in the sort of bottom of the top tier and it it still felt empty. It was it was remarkable. It really was. Um, I think the slight difference is though that, you know, in terms of obviously cricket, we're both cricket lovers. You know, cricket 
especially in a test match, you know, the, it's the ebbs and flows over over a session, over a day, over five days. So that you know that kind of passion that that sport live sport brings and, and instill uh, stirs up a crowd isn't there in the same way i've never seen a, an australian rules football game at the mcg uh but i hear it's quite a different atmosphere we've got hundred thousand uh, afl fans uh in there you know similar as it would be to to getting you know a, a packed old trafford yeah in terms of the afl i'm sure it's a very different atmosphere it's a much more potentially more hostile atmosphere as well but it's interesting you talked about cricket being more about the ebbs and flows. Obviously, the fans do play a part, but you might thought they are slightly one step away where they might be in a football match when we talked about that kind of tribal atmosphere from the fans. But Mark Allen, the snooker player, has been talking about the return to snooker this week. And he said, actually, playing snooker in front of an empty crowd, he's found it's a really sterile environment. And he's actually found it really difficult. And he said that when the players do go back to the Crucible in terms of an empty arena, that's actually going to be really difficult. He thought it's going to be hard for the players because although the crowd in snooker is by definition silent and they have to be silent, he says they still play a massive part being there, whether it's applauding breaks as they start to build, whether it's gasping when the pot gets missed, or you just had kind of knowing people watching you, given that like extra adrenaline rush as a player and he said that it's something players are going to have to get used to and he was certainly not making excuses but he was saying that even in a sport like snooker where you might not consider the role of the crowd it has been sterile and it's going to be difficult for the players what he needs to do is take his mobile phone put it sort of halfway up the stand set it on loud and get his his missus or his brother (laughs) or someone to ring to to recreate having to give that stare you know i'll I'll happily do i'll happily stick my mobile phone down for him but no, it's it's really interesting. It's really interesting. I think another another sport, you know, where where silence is prevalent is golf. Um, you know, and having you know visited a lot of golf tournaments uh, around the world, um, although golf fans are told to be silent, there's inevitably that kind of underlying hum. You know, and that underlying, yeah. just that sense of presence and that sense of atmosphere, which is probably what what Mark was alluding to. Also, with a sport like golf is that there's that underlying hum, but you also get a sense of what's happening on the course from the kind of cheers or groans you hear from holes away. So like if it's Saturday, big moving day, or it's kind of championship Sunday and you're at the top of the leaderboard, but you know the person two holes behind you is making a move because suddenly you kind of hear the cheers getting that little bit louder and that little bit louder with every hole. And you know that you're in a battle with this person, even though you're not actually on the same hole or the same part of the course. No, absolutely. Uh, I think you've, you've hit a nail on the head there. Is that sense of, you know, we talk about momentum in sport a lot. And momentum obviously is driven by a lot of the time, not only what is going on in the field, but coming from inside the players. And that can be, you know, ignited by the crowd, by the supporters, by, you know, a, a piece of magic that stirs them up. You know, how many times have you watched sport which has loud crowd numbers and and the shift in the noise and what that then drives drives on players um you know to achieve um is is, is really is really really interesting and in sports you probably wouldn't have thought about you know getting the adrenaline pumping we, we've seen we've seen some of the greatest uh golfing you know moments and comebacks coming in the Ryder cup yeah you know uh both from the european and american sides where where when our particular player on the last day you know, gets momentum, gets the ball rolling, you know, that then drives the, the crowd. And as you say, two holes back, all of a sudden, that ripple effect, that wave effect makes it way down the course. 
Yeah, 100%, 100%. And also, again, it's like in football. You kind of think if you're 2-0 down, but you score in the 80th minute, especially if you're at home, you kind of get that feeling that you're going to get another because suddenly the crowd just lifts and the crowd gets behind you and you think, well, we are back in this game and like that momentum totally changes. So it's something that we're going to see a lot a lot of in sport that actually the lack of crowds is going to probably make a massive effect on what happens on the pitch. And this is actually something we've been seeing in the Bundesliga, isn't it? That there's been a lot more way away wins than you'd expect at this time of the season. Well, 100%. I mean, this this uh, this weekend, once again, we only saw two home wins across the across the, the full Bundesliga uh, fixture card. Um, and that's something that's been emblematic across the, the sort of return return to the Bundesliga. And you sort of alluded to there, it's a it's a you know it's a goal, but we've seen it doesn't have to just be a goal; it can be a tackle. You yeah, know, how many yeah, times 100%. do you see see a tackle and a big hit being made in rugby? You know, uh, a screaming catch or a run out in cricket out of nowhere. You know, or not even that, just a brilliant piece of fielding. They might only save two. Yeah, you know, but what that does is it kind of wakes up that sleeping dormant dragon, which can which can you know make make the shift and, and, and make a real change. Yeah, and of course the players do have their part in that because you feel the players G themselves up and the players do lifts, but a lot of the times it is the fans that really drive that drive that momentum shift, especially in something where it's like a big tackle or a big kick or like in like rugby or something or an amazing piece of fielding because the fans really love that and they love seeing that because that's kind of that shows passion and it shows commitment and the fans that's something as fans you love more than anything. So that is going to be a massive change to sport, not having those moments over the next year or however long it is before fans come back into the stadium. Just on that, so, you know, we've obviously touched on golf and snooker a little bit as well as football and rugby. Obviously, the, the big difference in some of those is the, the team sport element compared to the individual sport element. So listening to, listening to the players around the world, you know, the same sort of message is coming through, which is, it's going to be different without crowds. You know, it's going to be hard. It's going to be eerie. It's going to, there's going to be less adrenaline, etc. I would contest that as an individual sports man or woman, that you are more used to self being self-driven and, and, and coming from within, you know, the inherent nature, the sports I've always played have been team sports. I, I, I've struggled when it's individual sports. I get my, my competitive edge from that camaraderie from from all all into being surrounded by people when you get to that elite level where you're playing in front of crowds like that and what have you to me it seems sensible that an individual has already got the tools and the techniques to go within themselves to find that drive and find that motivation so do you reckon they the individual sportsmen and women will deal better with lack of crowds i think in theory the logic suggests yes, as for all the reason you've just explained. But I think there will certainly be individuals who will be the opposite, though, because, yes, they will be self-motivated and they will have ways that they can motivate themselves as an individual, regardless of their surroundings. But you would have thought that for some people, actually, the crowd will be a big part of that. You see, I know it's in a Ryder Cup environment, but I'm sure you've seen it in an individual environment as well. Someone like Ian Poulter would always play off the crowd He'd always, or any golfers, like just giving it that big fist pump to the crowd when you hold a good putt can be a way for a golfer to motivate themselves and to kind of get that adrenaline that they need to kind of take themselves to the next level. So even though it's kind of coming as an individual drive, they know 
part of that individual drive is them playing off the crowd and them reacting to the crowd in some way. And it'd be like the same way that a high jumper would, you know, they'd clap their hands, they would get the crowd to kind of the slow hand clap, build them up, build them up. And that would help them get into their zone and their position to make that jump. So although it is an individual thing and as an individual, you have the tools better so to G yourself up than you might do in a team environment, the crowd still can play a big part in that. That's a very good point. And obviously Olympics is one of the, the big casualties that, that has come out of this uh, Tokyo 2020. And, and it's something I you make a very good point. I hadn't thought about because they talk, you know, in the talk about would they do the Olympics behind closed doors and everything, you know, would we suddenly see a lot less world records? Would we suddenly see a lot less, you know, outstanding performances because those individual athletes, like you say, like the high jumpers and long jumpers who feed off that energy and, and get people in the unison behind them, what that kind of does. No, it's it's really interesting. You know, going back to what we're talking about, about different sports coming back around the world at the moment, uh, for me, one of the big fascinating things is what's going to happen in La Liga, uh, which come, which starts again this uh, this Thursday. Um, we've obviously got Real Madrid uh, sitting two points ahead, Barcelona. Um You've got the opening game is is Seville versus Real Betis, but uh, so it'll be interesting to see how Spanish football takes to the behind closed doors, you know, compared to what the Bundesliga has done and, and the Premier League the following week. That title race is really going to intrigue me because going into the uh, football shutdown in Spain, Real Madrid had hit a really poor run of form. They'd won, I think they'd uh, they'd won only one of the last five games. Uh, and they'd drawn one of them. To be fairness, their only win in the, those last five games had been against Barcelona, um, but they'd lost to Betis. Uh, they'd, they'd then lost to Man City in the Champions League. They'd drawn with Celta Vigo. So it seems to me that actually this break in sport potentially could have, in a funny way, provided a bit of a, a, a helping hand to Real Madrid. I think this is fascinating for two reasons. One of the personal reasons I think this title race is fascinating because I'll suddenly be really invested in it because I never really follow Spanish football because I'm not that normally that bothered by Spanish football. But the lack of sport has kind of increased my appetite so much. I'm going to follow this race, I can imagine, pretty closely over the next coming weeks. But in terms of what you just said about the break could potentially have helped Real Madrid because it could make them re-sign some form, kind of get rid of those that wobble patch that they were going through. But in the same time, people said the same about Schalke, who had had a terrible, terrible second half to the season, um, having been in the top top six, I think it was, kind of coming up to October, November time. They then have won one game since January, and people thought, oh, well, maybe the break will have been good for them. Maybe they'll come back with a new, renewed sense of form, a new sense of hope, and they'll kind of finish the season strongly. But actually, anyone who's watched the Bundesliga have seen that Schalke have been continued to be pretty terrible to be honest um, and I know the commentators of BT Sport are really enjoying reminding the listeners of the fact how bad they've been but that is an evidence that actually for them potentially the problem was much deeper and a break of a couple months wasn't enough to fix it so I guess it'll depend on what the problems were at Real Madrid and why the form kind of wobbled but it does show that potentially a break actually isn't guaranteed to fix the fix the problem. No, it's, it's a it's a very it's a very fair point. Um, you know, there are many reasons why teams and athletes can go through form and struggle. You know, and especially in team sports, can that be deep rooted lack of trust for some reason within the squad? Whether it's coming, you know, from the top in terms of the way the club has run, whether it's management, whether it's personal uh, 
reasons in between certain players, you know, especially when you're talking about high-level sport that isn't an international level. How often do we see new managers or new teams or new general managers have to rip up teams because players just don't get on? They're human beings at the end of the day. So if there's a, a real sort of lack of trust there and, and you know, because one of the big things over the last couple of years has been the whole Gareth Bale scenario, you know, arguably one of the best individual footballers we, we've seen uh, in the last half decade plus. And yet, you know, the amount of flack and the amount of he's had to deal with the ups and downs, uh, he's had to deal with going there from the fans and from the media in Spain, but also at times from his teammates. You know, how what sort of impact does that have? Does does going through a time where you have to spend time away from each other and train over Zoom calls and everything else, does that actually maybe even provide a, a nesting ground for these sort of feuds or, or lack of trust between players to grow? Yeah, that's a very good point. It's hard to say. I guess the next few weeks will be really telling for Real Madrid. It'll really kind of show how the issues that will have arised earlier in the in the calendar year, whether they've been put to bed or whether they've been exaggerated by time apart. And obviously they're still filled in that Cristiano Ronaldo void. Yes, you know, of he, course. He he obviously is, is who he is and, and puts everything on his shoulders and whether you know he's a bit like Marmite, you either love him or you hate him. But I think we can all understand the sort of impact that, that he has wherever he goes. And, and even if you know, he can almost be the plaster to paper over a lot of the cracks in a dam because he can he can sort of transcend a lot of those issues with his individual brilliance. And yeah, he can win games by himself. And at the end of the day, you you can't replace Ronaldo. Like, he is so unique and that's why he frequently gets put in those conversations amongst the best players ever to have played the game because he is, in, he is within that category for sure. And I think potentially people hoped that Gareth Bale, though potentially maybe not quite as good, still was the kind of mercurial talent that could be that next sort of Ronaldo kind of big strong winger but it seems that he hasn't settled into the club as well as people at Real Madrid would hope and it looks inevitable now that he's not going to be there for too much longer I think that's I think that's safe to say so uh, that was obviously touched on Spanish football the other the other two sports that getting underway this week uh, we've got the Coppa Italia coming back in Italy Italy we've got still got the opportunity to have an all Milan final uh, on Friday UVA taking AC AC Milan on in the first semi and, and Napoli are taking on Inter in the second semi on the Saturday. So uh, it'd be really intriguing if, if both Milan teams make it to a to a normal Milan final and then no no fans. Uh, so <laughs> which which would seem to be a little bit of a little bit of a shame. Where is I mean this is my own naivety. Where is the Coppa Italia final normally played? So I, I guess in with the FA Cup and and the Scottish uh, Cup that, that that takes place at the national stadium in Italy is is in Rome, the Olympic Stadium, so I'm assuming it would be in Rome. Yeah, I've just looked it up. You've assumed correct. It is the Stadio Olimpio in Rome. Um, I was just wondering because I thought it'd be funny if an all-Milan final was to take place at the San Siro, just because... <laughs> a neutral final would be played between two home sides. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what they, in terms of the NFL, that's what they always talk about. When they have their Super Bowl, that does rotate round grounds and, and, and different clubs have it. And I think to, to date, there's not been a hosting team for the Super Bowl that has had its host team in it. So, for okay. example, it's never been hosted at the Giants Stadium and the Giants have been there or in Dallas with the Cowboys being there. So it would just be the thing that this year that uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which are hosting the uh, hosting the Super Bowl at the beginning of 2021, uh, that under the guise of Tom Brady would, would make it to a Super Bowl <laughs> final and there'd be no fans there. Yes, I mean, that would certainly um, cap off Tom Brady's career if he could move to a new 
a new franchise and instill the same success instantly. But does that you suggesting, Ali, that as a Super Bowl side, you will no, you should no longer be putting yourself forward to host the Super Bowl because you then intrinsically know that you're not gonna not gonna get there. A bit like golfers don't want to win the par three competition at the Masters because it means they're not going to win on the Sunday. Well, that's exactly what I was about to say. Is that to this day, I'm amazed that the, the, the golfers who get to the Masters even take part <laughs> in the par three. On the, I, I don't know, you obviously see the great fun and you see kids and partners and you know uncles and friends do the caddying and it's all good fun. But uh, if I was going to play, I would make sure I would hit every single tee shot out of bounds. As, <laughs> you know. But then again, sports sportsmen and women are competitive yeah they, they they want to win everything you know imagine being the first golfer to win the par three and then win it and then wear the green jacket on the sunday similarly be the first franchise to win a super bowl in your own stadium yeah that's exactly what i was going to say that imagine being that first person i think if i was a professional golfer and looking at the way i'm playing golf at the moment that's not going to happen anytime soon but we well, are wearing a green t-shirt so you, <laughs> you, 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 subconsciously you're trying right, to tell it's, it's all about the mental attitude ali but i think certainly i would want to be that first person i would want to be remembered as that first person that won the masters par three on the wednesday and then won the masters on the sunday so the last sport that kept back uh, around the world uh, this week actually had some some big news uh, at the early at the start of the week. Um, New Zealand rugby uh, have said that their Super Rugby teams, so obviously the Super Rugby Championship is the rugby championship for rugby union in Australia, uh, South Africa, and New Zealand traditionally. Um, the the New Zealand rugby franchises are sort of doing an inter into New Zealand tournament and with New Zealand announcing at the start of the week that they are going to be uh, completely removed from any sort of uh, lockdown restrictions in their country and returning to being a completely open country has meant they'll be able to get some get some bums on the seats and actually going to be the first sport to return with fans live in the stadium watching it yeah that's really exciting I mean I think it's going to spark a lot of jealousy from the rest of the world looking at New Zealand fans getting to go watch sport while we can't. But yeah, I think it's it's exciting and it shows progress and it shows that it will be possible one day to get fans back in the stadium and equally it'll kind of increase the increase the hype around that tournament. And I think that's going to be a fantastic tournament anyway because the Super Rugby franchises in New Zealand are just fantastic as people who watch Super Rugby will know and kind of have them going against each other and what I'm sure will be a very competitive and a very tense competition will be really, really great to see that high level of sport being played at a time where we've been deprived of high level sport for so long. I think so. You know, anyone who's sort of spent any time in New Zealand or, or been around any New Zealand is what you'll know. It's like cricket is in India. You know, it's it's a, it's a religion over there, and and to have a tournament where they can almost go back to their roots and they can, you know, once and for all say we are we are the best you know and and i think you know it starts with the highlanders versus the chiefs on saturday um and i think it'll be really interesting to see what levels that, that all the athletes are at you know and, and what sort of level we have will there be rustiness you know that's the thing we've been looking at especially like a, a contact sport like rugby um and, and it's something i actually wanted to ask you about rory is, is you know we talked a little bit earlier about who if anyone, you know, might benefit, like Real Madrid potentially could benefit from from the breaking sport. I, I was watching the NRL uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was their first week back, and and uh, there was a a debutant uh, for the Newcastle Knights, a, a chap called Chris Randall, uh, who made the most amount of tackles ever made 
by a debut player in the NRL. I mean, it was 70, 71 or something tackles in, wow. in a game, which is, which is just incredible. I think I think the previous record had been about 50, so right, okay. something like that. So, so he beat it comfortably. And it just sort of sparked me that my, my one of the sports I follow closely is American football, and they have a lot of rotation uh, from year to year because they've got their draft system and their rookie system and they come in. For me... People keep saying, well, then the, the new players are not going to be able to acclimatize to, to the professional level. They're not going to be able to acclimatize. That sort of period where they get to get train and they get in there and they get boots on the ground, et cetera, and, and learn in that rapid sort of curve they get from training and, and the pre-seasons is going to be lost because of everything that's gone on. I wonder if actually people have seen this a little bit the wrong way. If you're, if you're a sort of a professional who's who's been around a bit and you've changed teams or if you are set in certain ways at a club because you've been there ingrained there for so long and then those things are interrupted you know and you can't do that could that not arguably have more of a detrimental effect to the, than to any young sportsman or woman who is by definition starting out so they have nothing to lean on they, they don't know the ins and outs they're going in with a you know a completely enthusiastic approach of being a sponge. You know, it's, you know, in development of people, we say teach your kids to learn languages at an early age because their brain just sops up anything. Same way as in this pandemic where normalcy has been completely removed, those athletes who don't have any normalcy in their given sports at the most highest level because they're a rookie or, you know, they're, they're on their first contract or what have you, does that not almost arguably give them an advantage? Because they can just go out and do what they do well because they have nothing else to lean on. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And I think there's a lot of potential in that being very much the case. I think certainly for the most talented players, for that kind of top 1% who are just really, really naturally gifted, naturally talented, I think certainly they might certainly be benefited or certainly not not be hindered by the situation because they'll go into that environment and they will thrive no matter what kind of they've been through before and obviously they'll then get better from the training they'll absorb more from the training but you think if they have the talent and if they've got to the level at that stage before lockdown they should just be as capable after lockdown I think where the players that might struggle are the kind of maybe more hard-working types of players that maybe haven't developed quite as young and they kind of get into this professional and sporting environment from working hard and training and really kind of honing their game over a number of years and being that environment maybe the players that came in at 1920 weren't quite good enough to make it into starting teams yet but were kept in the squads they worked hard they worked hard and they spoke to people and they developed and kind of over the course of the years they became really fantastic professional athletes I think they're maybe the people that might be a bit more hindered by the lack of opportunity they've had over the few months to kind of really learn and talk to people and absorb information but I think for the most talented players they're going to go out and do what they do best because that's what players do when they come into a new team for the first time. They do what they do best. And that's why I think a lot of times, as you've hinted to, you see players come in, be really good in their first year or two, and then actually drop off the curve because they start to get ingrained by the professional sport environment and potentially neglect the things that got them into that place in the first place. So is there not a scope to say, though, that those players you talked to that have worked hard and they've had to earn it, and they're not necessarily the most talented players, is during a period away from the game are the ones who are going to keep working hard on their own. And and those who have got by purely on talent, you know, are going to have an extra hamburger, you know, and are going to and, and go, 
oh, well, I'm, I'm on furlough or, yeah. or, or I've got nothing, nothing in the foreseeable future. So you know what? I'm not going to do those shuttles. Yeah. Uh, uh, and actually, the, the hardworking ones will will be the ones who kind of come back in in better shape. I think, uh, yeah, that's not that's that's a very good point, and could potentially come to be true. I guess what I was thinking is more that the players who maybe aren't quite good enough yet, but from training in that environment for a long time, gets their skills up to be good enough. So, and they need to be in that environment to improve those skills potentially are being hampered by doing individual training by themselves, which might not be pushing them in the same way that they need to to develop further. Um, is there anyone else kind of comes to mind when you think about this potential break in, in sport might either potentially could benefit or, or it, it hinder even more than others? Well, I think the big one that people have talked about is the England football team with the Euros being pushed back. Uh, England's we're battling a lot of injuries. I think notably Harry Kane has been injured for a long time. Um, and also they've got a young squad. They've got a kind of a lot of young players, are kind of like the Georgian Sanchos of the world, who are just kind of coming into prevalence as top international footballers, but have maybe not been in this pedestal long enough to, well, let's say this, this way, they'll be more experienced, they'll be better in a year's time than they are now, you would think. So... Certainly someone like the England football team seems to have benefited from the fact that the Euros is going to be played next year rather than this year. Well, I mean, there was talks of Jamie Vardy being sort of trying to coerce him out of out of retirement because not only you know, Harry Kane was was a rush uh, against time fitness, uh, Marcus Rashford uh, w- w- was was the same. You know, Tammy Abraham showed Tammy Abraham has showed some real you know real excellent starts to the season, but. I say a young player who who had kind of fluctuated as, as the season had gone on. So, you know, I, I think in terms of what Gareth Southgate uh, has at his disposal and where he's taking the team, um, you know, and, and it really potentially could uh, provide them with a more more stability going into that tournament. E- even people like Kieran Trippier, you know, who who had gone abroad, the experience that he'll gain from playing in a different league, you know, he'd fall out of favour. But remember how instrumental he was to the success uh, for the, when they got to the semi final uh, two years ago. And, uh, and I think it's it's a really good point is that um, the knock on effect to this, uh, what that might happen. Now we don't know what's going to happen down the line with other injuries. Um, and the, and the, another one for me on a similar vein is, is a lot of Olympic athletes. Yeah. Um, you know, and and we're going to be fortunate enough over the next couple of weeks to speak to a couple of uh, Olympic athletes uh, or, or perspiring Olympic, perspective Olympic athletes, and and delving into what the qualification process looks like of that. And you know. These these athletes work in four year cycles. You know everything is meticulously planned for four year cycles, and and we've seen athletes, uh, you know, decide not to go to things like the Commonwealth Games previously because it's not part of their regimented program because the Olympic gold is in their eyes at that given time the priority, and so having to shift everything back twelve months, what does that look like? You know, it, it's obviously going to potentially mean that certain players are either going to have to make big decisions on retirement. You know, were they going to retire after Tokyo? Are they going to have to go through another year of the grind? Mentally, do they have that in them? Also, a question I haven't got the answer to is, does everyone have to re-qualify? You know, people have hit their qualifying targets in the various disciplines. 12 months down the line, does everyone have to re-qualify because they're going off at times and heights and and weights they've lifted and whatever it might have been from 12 months, you know, 12 months dated. So it was going to be really interesting to see what happens in that scope in terms of are, are the sort of 
new kids on the block going to be so new? Is there going to be some newer kids on the block in the Olympic movement? And also those household names we've got to know, are they going to have another year in them? You know, because we've seen what effect age has on, on how athletes perform. Yeah, definitely. I think it is an unprecedented and totally fascinating situation with the Olympics because putting the Olympics back a year is something that has never happened before and it would, will, as you said, change the scope of a lot of things because that four-year cycle is such like a monotonous and ever-present factor of so many of these sports. And I think, especially, I think the age thing is a massive thing because people are kind of looking at Tokyo for their last hurrah. I think someone like Jason Kenny, who is going to try become the most decorated British athlete of all time. Now, he's been around for a while. He's getting towards the back end of his career. Will he still be in another 12 months as fast as he would have been now? And would this potentially burden his opportunity to become the most decorated British Olympic athlete of all time? We'll only have to wait and see, but I think it will be fascinating and it'll certainly add an extra element to the conversation come 2021. I think so. And then what happens then? Does it does it go back? Does it then become a three-year cycle? Uh, you know, what 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 does that look like? Um, so it's going to be really intriguing to see, to see where that goes. One final piece of housekeeping. Uh, we'll be coming to you uh, once a week on a Wednesday. Uh, we'll be delighted for any feedback you want to give us. Uh, either go over to our Instagram or our Twitter page. Uh, or any feedback you want to give us on Apple Podcasts. We hope this will be the only time that you just hear from us. As we said at the top of the show, that the plan is to have different men and women from the world of sport. And so far, we've managed to line up some fantastic guests, including uh, from rugby, uh, from curling, from diving. Uh, from field hockey, from physiotherapy. Plan is to to grow and grow this. So we look forward to hearing some insights on on the world of sport. I'm really excited to get the guests on over the next few weeks. I think we're going to have some fascinating conversations surrounding different individuals, their stories, their journey through the world of sport, but also their journeys off the field as well. And we'll also get some fantastic insight into some fantastic people who are involved in sport away from the pitch and get a full detailed understanding of how sports teams and how the world of sport is constructed from players to backroom staff to all the fantastic people that help run the sports clubs that we enjoy and love. Uh, We would normally finish the episode with our top threes. So this will be a a segment we do every week where we will have a topic and we have to provide uh, our top threes in that. So this will be ranging from, uh, you know, so, some players in the in different in different sports, different grounds we've visited, different sporting moments we've either witnessed live or on the telly, just a whole range of different things to give a bit more insight of what we enjoy and what we've enjoyed in the world of sport and hopefully spark some discussion uh, amongst yourselves. And, and every week we'll be putting a poll up uh, on, on Twitter and Instagram to see who came up with the best top three. So we look forward forward to to your engagement for that well thank you for listening to the utility players podcast we look forward to seeing you again wednesday and we hope you'll stay safe